Well, hey, everybody, welcome to uh, The Big Questions. Uh, this is a series we do in order to delve into some sticky, some thorny, some difficult issues that present themselves to us. I'm here with Liz Diddy and Jay Kim, um, who are, are part of our teaching team. Um, and also, um, we are going to be delving into probably the thorny, one of the thorniest issues that's faced us in 2020, which is the issue of politics and faith. Um, it was probably one of the more contentious elections that we've had, at least in my lifetime. The rhetoric was ratcheted all the way up to 10, and then people took it to a 12. I mean, it was, it was, it was disorienting to be a Christian. There were some Christians who said, if you vote this way, you're betraying Christ. And others said, no, 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 no. If you vote this way, you're betraying, betraying Christ. So in the middle of that, Westgate kind of wrote a position paper uh, in which we tried to navigate as a staff and elders uh, the idea of politics and faith, um, and that's and that's available. That's on our website. We'll we'll put a link here in the in in the in the comments and the description, so you can read that for yourselves. But we just wanted to open this up and have a, a conversation. But before we even get into that, I think we should need to talk about why we needed to write this paper. Um, it, this paper was a an attempt to be a service and a help to the people here. So Jay, you want to talk about? Um, the impetus behind uh, the, the feeling we needed to write this? Yeah, I mean, so much of it is what you've already said, Dave. We, we are living through uh, a, a, a time in which political strife is, um, it's, been, it's been ramped up in really unique ways, in ways that feel unfamiliar to me. I mean, political tension has always been a reality, but uh, the, the depth and intensity of the tension feels new. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. And one of the, one of the things that really feels new about it is that, you know, Christians have always wrestled with the intersection between their faith and politics. I think that's always been true. Um, but the ways in which that intersection is now uh, sort of ripping us apart. And by us, I don't just mean our nation. I mean, specifically Christians, followers of Jesus, you know, and yeah. that's really new. So in many ways, this paper was a helpful way for me, not as just a pastor, but as a Christian to try to at least begin to put some language around, um, what we the ways we can posture ourselves when we begin to think about and engage uh, politics as followers of Jesus. Um, and you know the th the thought that's been sort of ruminating in me in the last several weeks is I am always in a rush to sort of resolve something and put a period at the end of the sentence and then yeah. move on. When it comes to the issue of faith and politics, um, I, I think this is a first word in a long ongoing conversation. There are so many, some things are very simple, but there are also so many complexities on the ground um, that I, more than anything, I want to start, try to posture myself as a learner, you know, while maintaining fidelity and faithfulness to the way of Jesus as best as I can. 
Um, so that's why we put the paper together as a first word to give us a framework for at least beginning to think about engaging politics as, as Christians. I think one of the things that's it's pretty clear, and, and Liz and I were talking about this before um, we even started recording, is that this paper is probably going to be disappointing to both so people on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, as, as we get into this, it's, it's pretty clear that there is a, a, a group of Christians who feel uh, acutely that their core beliefs um, are not held by the majority population. And because of that, they feel like the culture in general is hostile to their core beliefs of who they are. And so there's a sense in which this group kind of feels as though they need a strong man to stand up for what feels to be um, a, a threat to, to their belief system. Now that, that threat actually um, probably is not actually a threat in terms of religious liberty. The Supreme Court has protected religious speech again and again and again, but there's cultural things that are going on um, that make them feel besieged. And so there's folks who are saying, we need to take a stand. And then on the other side of the spectrum, uh, perhaps there's, there's other folks who say, listen, what we saw this summer was so egregious. The injustice was so pronounced, the wickedness so out there that we need to actually be a church who, who actively declares whose side we're on on this. And we need to take a stand and not just say things, but actually work toward real justice. And both sides um, probably are going to be a little disappointed in this paper because we don't name names or, you know, uh, outline issues like that. It's just more of a framework for how we're trying to deal with that. Let's let's talk about that for a second, because that tension is is real, not just in American Christianity, but probably right here in the Bay Area. Yeah, and I think when you say what we saw this last summer, what you mean is what we um, had our attention drawn to this last summer that we have continued to see since then and was a problem long before then of racial injustice and racial violence. Right, right, that these, these moments or codified moments of, of national attention, drawing attention to a historical issue. Right, and, and while Westgate has um, made some comments um, and obviously condemned a number of actions uh, on Sunday mornings um, and offered prayer and support and, and stood with a number of people, um, it's very rare for Westgate to make um, stands on anything that's political. I, I feel like, you know, even in our talks with each other, I'm often trying to be like very studied in my words to stay as neutral as possible. And that, that seems to be the culture of the leadership of our church. So um, for people who wish that we would take more of a stand on things, what do you say about that? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great thought. Um, what, what I... I can't speak for the entire leadership of Westgate Church right now. Uh, I'll just speak for myself. I um, don't take politics lightly, it, and, and I, I take it seriously. And I take it seriously not because I believe politics will save us, but because I am almost certain politics will fail us. And am almost certain that there is no saving coming our way except by way of the one true king of the world. Now, that does not mean that politics are unimportant. It means that politics walk the fine line of being 
um, idolatrous when we're not careful. And that's why I take it seriously. I actually have seen in the last several years, especially, I think this has always been true, but at least for me and my experience, politics has become an idol for so many people in general and for so many Christians, it has become an idol. Yeah. Um, you know, Christopher Wright in his book, Here Are Your Gods, he, he, he has this fantastic line. He says, in the tattered remnants of Christendom that still survive in the Western world, um, the monosyllable God still tends to mean in the popular mind or imagination, God as presumed within the Christian heritage of Western civilization. And then he says, so this is why God turns up uh, in public speech in God, we trust God bless America, God save the queen, um, all of that kind of stuff. I think that's so interesting because when we say things like God bless America, we don't really care too much to ask the question, what do we mean by God? We just want to know whatever that God is, blessing better be coming our way. And if and that blessing, blessing defined by us, usually materially. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. And the most physical, tangible way we can we see ourselves being able to squeeze out the juice of blessing as much as possible, I think, is by way of politics. And so we've conflated politics with this mentality that God is supposed to bless us. And so it's become this like really, really destructive idol, to be honest, um, which is why I think, like you said, Dave, the paper is going to be disappointing to people on various sides because the paper is not intended to confront very specific issues. The paper is intended to give us a framework for following Jesus faithfully and then seeing politics through that lens, which actually, subtly enough, is a confrontation to the idolatry of politics. So it's a yes. paper on faith and politics, but it's, it's an indictment on um, a sort of, and I'll just say this very strongly because I believe this is true, not for all, but for many, a sort of wicked uh, allegiance um, a deal with the devil, if you will, yeah. that so many Christians have made with politics. What I mean by that is the belief that a political savior will lead us home and yeah. he or she will not ever, yeah. know, no matter who. So. I would absolutely say that, Jay, because I, um, I, don't, I don't know that it's necessarily just blessing that people are looking for. Like it, the way you hear people talk, it really is life or death. We are becoming either a totalitarian dictatorship or we are becoming a communist society. And in either case, um, like religious freedom is going to, is, is at stake. Yeah. Um, the lives of unborn babies are at stake. The, like, like it is, it is life or death um, as to whether or not Christians will be able to continue to worship freely to, um, you know, all of those things. Um, uh, I think it's, it's beyond freedom. It is, or beyond blessing. It's like freedom and, um, and liberty. Yeah. Uh, I, man, I, let's stay there. And I'm going to come back and ask you a question, Liz, about what you've seen, because uh, about the tension, about the ripping apart, if you've seen that in your friend groups, in the small groups, in the, in the Christian groups, but what you just mentioned was what David French called flight 93 rhetoric. 
And I love this because in Flight 93, if you recall, in 9-11, it was the it was the plane that went down in the field in Pennsylvania. And the idea is that the plane's going to go down. So we have to use any tactic, including incredible violence, to make sure that doesn't happen. And it's justified because the plane's going down either way. And this uh, is what David French says is super dangerous. And it gets really icky when it comes down to like, um, if this candidate or this policy gets enacted, um, the church is going to fail. It's going to be hurt. It's going to be destroyed. That's like theologically not not even possible. Like there, there's, there's all sorts, that's just, the church is not just historically survived more, but theologically, Jesus even says to Peter, like, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell aren't even going to prevail against it. So there's, there's some icky, there's some real ickiness to that language um, that can really, I think, reveal uh, where we're putting our trust. Um, have you guys seen that kind of rhetoric there? Yeah, for sure. I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that, I mean, there's, it's, it's, there's a lot there. So one of the things I will say is, you know, I want to couch what I'm about to say with this first. I do think that political engagement in so much as it, it, it doesn't compromise um, behavior uh to, to a point where, where you are behaving outside of the way of Jesus. For example, enacting violence. That's yeah. not the way of Jesus. Right. To harm, whether physically or verbally, which that's a whole other thing. We, we are violent toward one another with our words because we have these tools that allow us to safely speak uh, in disgusting ways to each other from behind these digital screens. And so not just non-Christians, but Christians speak such vile things to each other. Well, that's not the way of Jesus. And so anyways, you know, for example, as, as one example of violence, but, but in, in so much as we can engage politically as followers of Jesus um, without compromising our following of Jesus, I think that we should, you know? So when you talk about... Um, uh, defending the lives of the unborn, uh, or when you talk about, you know, what sort of galvanized this past summer with defending the lives of um, people of color, uh, all of that stuff matters because those are all justice issues tied into the Imago Day, right? That God has created human beings in his image. And that if it, whether the human is in a womb or uh, whether the human has um, skin color that is different than yours, as a follower of Jesus, you are called, without compromising the way of Jesus, you are called to engage as deeply as possible in defense of all of those lives. So yeah. that matters. But what you are saying is such an important distinction. We cannot believe that that victory can only be achieved by way of uh, enacting political power. In fact, throughout history, the times faith has thrived the most are the times when we have been, by we I mean Christians, have been oppressed the most. And so for example, I am, by the way, I am not saying like, you know, who cares what laws are enacted? Again, 
let's within the boundaries of the way of Jesus, let's engage as much as we can to make a difference politically and otherwise. Mm -hmm. But let's just say things go as, as badly and horrifically as some people fear that they will in our country. Let's just say that's where we're headed. What does that mean? Does that mean at the end of the day, Jesus actually loses? <laughs> does it mean that God's kingdom actually doesn't come? Or does it mean that the church gets squashed and, and pillaged and is burnt up forever and there is no more church? There is no more Christianity? Well, history tells us the reverse is true. That if the laws are changed and Christians in America are persecuted, historically speaking, what we, what we could project is that the church would actually thrive under those circumstances. So again, I'm not saying that to say like, don't engage politically as a follower of Jesus. Certainly do. I think it's our responsibility, but this whole... Or that you're, or that you're wishing for uh, persecution. That, that's absurd, right? No, no. Yeah, what I'm saying. Right. You're, you're just saying that. like if it happens like Jesus is really big and he's really powerful and is is he's shown himself to be faithful to his his people yeah yeah uh you know one of the things we talk about all the time Liz this is a question for you uh, is 640 discipleship becoming like Jesus how have you seen politics rip people away from the way of Jesus what have you seen like it because you're also into spiritual formation that's one of your that's one of the things you do. You do spiritual formation. You're excellent at it. You've written books on it. Um, so what have you seen in terms of the formation of hu human souls? And what have you seen that um, gives you, I guess, concern um, or maybe uh, alarm? Maybe alarm's too strong a word. Maybe concern is a better word. Yeah, I mean, I don't... <laughs> Um, I don't think I'm going to say anything that anyone else hasn't said before. And it's hard to, you know, it's hard to pinpoint like, or even separate politics and pandemic at this point, right? Like we're, we're so intertwined. Um, but I think uh, with pandemic, um, a lot of us have been drawn um, into either complete isolation or into very small circles of people, um, which, which, um, you know, we've talked before that, um, uh, like, uh, closeness, um, uh, proximity breeds empathy and, and distance breeds suspicion. Right. And, and so it's one thing when, you know, you're, you're at work or you're in, um, different environments where you're talking with people who you, you respect and who think differently than you. And, um, you know, like, they have good points about different things or you can see how, because you know their personal story, you can see how they would be, how they would come at things from, uh, there, there's so many ways where like our connections with people who are different than us or think different than us have been, um, have been changed or we've been distanced physically from each other. Um, I think like that's really harsh. Um, also, you know, the, the amount of time that people are spending online consuming content yeah. um, is, uh, I think has gotten really, really high. <laughs> um, and it's not just any content, like, you know, even you can tell what people are clicking on and what they're consuming by what is on every single news page. And, you know, you, whatever news page you go to, whatever, wherever you read on the spectrum, it is either politics or pandemic on every front page. Um, you know, you, you 
like there are some human rights issues that are going on around the world. Um, but other like like for our for our national government, it is it's politics or pandemic. And yeah. one of the things that um, Ezra Klein talks about is um, is how easy it is to get sucked into these national narratives um, and get sucked away from our local community narratives. So that's, I think, another thing that's happening with both politics and pandemic playing off of each other is we're getting sucked out of the news of our own city and our own area, and we're getting sucked into these like big national things. And the big national things we actually have far less control over. We have far less understanding of the complexities and the, the things that are at play. The things where we actually could be contributing or helping um, are, are most likely at our local level, you know, within our school district, within our within our town, um, within our, our community of the people who are shut in and whatnot. Um, when I think about like the best example that I can think of of Christians being involved in politics, I think about International Justice Mission and the way that they um, take their work on justice and human trafficking. And they, they lobby and they talk to politicians and they work with law enforcement and they work with the FBI and they work with lawmakers. Um, and educate them and you know are, are like really like making a difference um and and um for us to engage in politics that way to thoughtfully look at you know where a difference can be made and make investments in that and you know and put our own time and our own energy and our own you know sweat on the line um to go serve people or um you know to make a difference within the system a lot of that is at the local level um, and a lot of that costs us. Um, but for us to just like pledge our allegiance somewhere and throw a rant about something, doesn't um, it doesn't cost us and it doesn't really do anything. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so, so that to say, I think formationally we've been taken away from our, in our communities um, and um, where we can be connected and make a difference and have good conversations and develop empathy. And we've been drawn into these like national debates that are really hard for us to even know how to engage in. Um, and, and then we've also just then been consuming a lot of information, um, a lot of it from you know very biased sources one end or the other um and um and and we're consuming this information without knowing how to engage with it or how to use it um and and then uh that consumption of of news and um uh, is like that is absolutely formationally affecting our brains and our spirits um, Let me uh, just to back up that I'm going to share my screen real quick. I want to show you guys a, a picture. This is from John Mark Comer. Uh, Jay, you'll be familiar with this. This is the idea of spiritual formation, which is that uh, we are shaped by the stories we believe, the habits, and then the relationships. And that all has to do with the environment. The reason I bring that up is, Liz, what you're talking about is a disconnect from relationships, right? The stories that we believe, these narratives, those are, are now being dominated by news, news, and whether you're left or right on the on the spectrum, doesn't matter, the dominance of that. And then that actually is affecting our habits and that shapes and forges, it forms us as humans. Because Jesus wants to be the one who, who implants in and says to us, 
and tells us his stories, right? And plants is not the right word, um, but gets into us uh, um, those and that his community, his relationship- Faster than a Bill Gates vaccine microchip. <laughs> okay. See, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if we can make that joke yet. That might be too soon, Liz. But the point is that you're, you're making a point that these, these, the, the input of, 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 the, of news uh, plus the disconnect from um, these kind of relationships where we can have honest dialogue is really hurting us right now in 2020 or hurt us in 2020. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Jay, do you have anything to add to that? No, I, I think that's exactly right. The thing I think about is, um, you know, the famous Neil Postman book from the oh. 80s. The title is so appropriate. We're amusing ourselves to death. And uh, we don't think about it as entertainment because um, we think it's real. I mean, it is real, but the way it's packaged and produced and presented to us yeah. is to entertain us, you know? So all media, news media outlets, their primary goal is not so much to get you the most accurate. I mean, they're going to tell you that's their goal. It's and not. that may be that may be a goal, but their primary goal is to make money. Get clicks, and right? The way they make money is to keep your eyes glued, to, to hold your attention. Yeah. And uh, they'll do whatever they've got to do to hold your attention, you know? So um, that's why there's the, the old saying, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, <laughs> like on news stories, it's like the gorier and the more violent and the more crazy and angry and whatever, uh, you're going to see it because it'll keep you glued. So um, I, I just, think, you know, the ingestion of the, the information. Um, a friend of mine named Brett McCracken, he just released, he's going to release a book this month in a few days called The Wisdom Pyramid. Mm -hmm. And it's this thing he's been working on for several years. And I would, I would highly recommend it, not to give him a plug, I mean, although I'm plugging him, because he essentially talks about how we are of how we shape and form wisdom in our lives. Yeah. If it's a pyramid, like a food pyramid, the, the foundational levels need to be scripture and experience with God and quiet time and life in the community of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And then up top, like the, you know, the sweet stuff, the dessert stuff is like a little internet, a little media, a little bit of social media, whatever. But we reverse the order, Christians included. Most of our diet, as Liz is saying, is like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, what's here? And then a sprinkling of Bible every now and then, mostly out of guilt. And so it's no wonder why we're spiritually, emotionally so out of whack. It's like eating cotton candy three times a day and mixing in some broccoli, you know, once a week or something. I will, I, I will go on record to say that cotton candy and broccoli are delicious together. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, Liz, you were going to see, you were going to jump in and say something it sounded like. Oh yeah, um, what was that? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean. I didn't mean. I didn't mean. To be able to that. No, that's okay. Um, uh, I I think I was I was just gonna say that. Um, oh, I know it's been trendy to do like social media fasts, um, and not. I mean, not even just trendy. I I did a social media fast, and I haven't I haven't gone back yet. 
Um, I actually have really enjoyed not having that be a part of my, my routine right now. Um, That said, um, I have replaced it with reading the news. Um, I know that a number of other people have it. And and it's hard because you do want to stay informed. Like you don't want to tell people don't just don't look at the news. Um, You do want to stay informed um, intelligently. And um, also, you know, like the news actually feels like it affects us. Like, you know, is the vaccine coming out? Is it working? Like, are we, when are we going to get back to normal? When are we going to get back to, you know, when are schools going to open? When are, you know, like, like we have like some pressing questions that we're sort of looking for hints as to like how, you know, how that's going to play out. And so, um, but I, I think that it's really important to be mindful of, I mean, kind of what you were just saying, Jay, as, as far as like what place on the pyramid it has, like, is it the first thing you look at in the morning yeah. is how long are you? And most of us, most of our phones will tell us, you know, how, how much screen time we've had and what it's been devoted to. And so I think, um, noticing that, um, and, and if too much of it is going towards to social or the news, like we might just notice, um, I mean, we might not even realize how much it's affecting our anxiety or our perspective of other people. One more thing I want to get into uh, before we leave. And that is, um, it feels, you know, no, it doesn't feel it. Um, there's all sorts of articles in this truth has taken a big hit this in 2020 uh, objective reality and facts and uh when i was growing up in the 90s um people would say things like hey listen you got to be real careful of relativism relativism is when you don't listen to objective truth and you just make stuff up that you want to be true and that's the danger and who knew that relativism would encroach everywhere including the church uh this month's christianity today the lead article uh, this week, I just clicked on it, was about uh, how do pastors, how do church leaders talk to people about conspiracy theories that are baseless? Um, that's an extreme example, but I think in general, there, there is a sense in which we need to be, um, to, we need to talk about truth. Um, and it, it feels really interesting because this goes to wisdom, which is Brett McCracken's point, right? The idea that how do you get to wisdom? How do you get to truth? And the, the, the ancients and the, and, the, and the Jews say it's communal, that there, there is safety in the wisdom of a community. And as, uh, as autonomous individuals, I'm hearing people say, that's not true. I'm the final arbiter of truth and all of you are wrong. So how do, oh man, how do we as a Christian community get to truth in a world of misinformation and chaotic distrust? I do think people find communities that reinforce their ideas of truth, for sure. They they build up communities around them that reinforce those things. I don't I don't think that it's necessarily all individuals. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree. I agree. You mean like I, echo I think... chambers, Liz. You're saying, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But that that I would argue that that's not exactly what the communal wisdom seeking is is referring to. Sure. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I, I would just say um, some of it is linguistic limitations in that when we talk about truth, particularly in a 
post and post enlightenment world, uh, we 99.9% of the time, when you say the word truth, what people are talking about is object is objective data. That's what, that's what people mean. Right. So is something true in a post enlightenment world is a question that you are essentially, you're asking the question, does it weigh as much as you said it weighs? Is it as tall or as short as you said it is? Or you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. all measurable stuff. I mean, I wish you wouldn't have brought up weight in the time of COVID, but you know, go ahead. Uh, and that is truth. That's not not truth. But we have to remember, again, this is where like our allegiances get so wacky. Um, there is another deeper, more ultimate truth. When Jesus talks about truth, he doesn't, he doesn't say um, this is a tool you use to know what is true and what is false, or here's the formula or the equation you use to measure what is true or what is false. He doesn't say that. He personifies truth. He like literally personifies truth. He says, I am the truth, yeah. the way and the life. Um and Jesus is not static. He's a person. He's dynamic. He, um, he's God and he's spirit. He's all those things, right? Uh, and and I, I, don't, I, I don't think in the modern, late modern Western mind, we have categories. I don't think we have categories for understanding truth as a dynamic personified reality. We only think of truth as static, fixed, objective data points. Mm -hmm. and, and those things are not untrue. That is true. It's scientifically true. And I think that that matters. Truth matters. But again, for the Christian, when you ask the question, what is true? The primary question you have to ask is not... Um, you know, is this point of data true? And is this point of data untrue? And which is truer than the other? I mean, that stuff is important. But I think the most important thing is, again, tr truth personified is Jesus himself. And so if we are going to see ourselves and the world truthfully, we have to see ourselves and the world through Jesus, who is the truth. And I, I'm not saying let's not do the hard work of figuring out if that data point is accurate or not. I think those things are really important, you know, and, and listen, if there are people watching this, and I'm certain that there are who are like, well, actually, guys, I'm, I do question the vaccine, for example, or I do sort of think that there might be credence to this theory or that theory, call it a conspiracy or not. Like, I'm not here to argue that one way or the other. And, and I mean, we could talk about it. I have my own personal opinions, but the thing that really, really is concerning to me is that those quests for truth are almost always void of Jesus. Like we don't, and, and the reason that matters is because on the journey toward truth or on the quest for truth or true things, we so often act so unlike Jesus. Like we talk and we engage and we interact and we, 
um, critique and criticize and make fun of in ways are, that are so unlike Jesus. And here's the deal. When Christians act that way, it doesn't matter if you found a data point that is objectively true. You're living outside of actual truth. Because you're not truth. following the humility path of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think anyone who's ever done serious work with data and like large amounts of data knows that how you pull data, what you look at, the, the boundaries that you put around it are going to change the way that you interpret it drastically. And I think one of the things that we have to come to grips with is that we just don't have access to the, the data that we really want, you know, and even the graphs and some of the things that we might see or that are floating around, like the, um, the, the way that they came to that data and the way that they are displaying that data, um, it, it can really change the interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of the things that you said, like really struck me, Jay, is that, you know, that truth is embodied in Jesus, that Jesus per personifies truth. And, um, I think that that's one of the biggest things is that truth is part of the identity of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And, and if our identity is going to be in Christ, it's going to be in that truth. Um, but if we, I, I think one of the reasons why many people are closed to or skeptical or find it difficult to change their minds about some of the information that they have or that they see um, is because their identity is in something else, right? And, and so to change their mind about that, um, you know, like there are, I'm sure we've all been in, in Facebook conversations like this, right? Where, you know, someone puts up a map or puts up a chart or puts up something and you're like, um, Mm, that's like, that doesn't make sense or, you know, whatever, but you can't actually even have a conversation with them about whether or not the data is bounded and true. Um, because for them to say that that doesn't make sense or for them to change their mind about whether or not that, that is real, it would affect not only their sense of self, but even their relationships with the people around them. It would affect the people who respect them, it would affect their position in sort of the social world that they've created. Um, it, it affects too much. There's like too much at stake when your identity is is bound up in 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 one point of view or another that you can't change your mind or open yourself to truth. I think that's one of the the critical things about rooted being rooted in Christ is that you can say like. You know, yeah, um, maybe I, I, I voted for this person, but I also see that this person has a case or, you know, I like some of the issues that, you know, yeah. theoretically this, this political spectrum has a monopoly on social justice, but, but this has a monopoly on, you know, whatever, then you can say like, yeah, I, um, I identify as this, but I care about um, Black Lives Matter or how, however, like whichever way you want to cross over from one end to the other, 
you can you can ha have your identity rooted in Christ in a way that you can be open to the truth that's on both sides because no one is completely right or completely wrong um, and so I think being able to change your mind being able to um, accept truth when you see it like like that's some of the wisdom that we can have as Christians when we're not bound to a political identity yeah one of the things I um, and, you know, there's people that disagree with me, but right now I'm in the middle of the seminary and Liz, you are too, Jay, you know, you've been through these, you, you actually teach some of these cohorts, Jay, but these cohorts are meant to, to get people together in a room who um, are serious about scripture from wildly different backgrounds. And so I'm interacting with people from different tribes of Christianity with different thought processes, whether it's Mennonite brethren to um, the, the Black Church in Chicago to more charismatic folks out of Oral Roberts, you know, I mean, to, to the Calvary Chapel um, in, in, in Southern California, the, the, uh, all these different uh, kind of streams of Christian thought. And one of the things I'm realizing is sitting, asking questions, and really listening to other people allows me to get to truth. And that's why the, I think the first premise in the paper is humility, you know, out of that. It's hum one of the first ideas is humility. Um, Esau Macaulay wrote the book, Reading While Black. He's basically, and there was a Christianity Today book of the year. He's saying, look, you know, black folk have something, to, black theologians have something to say that's different than what you might've read. This stream of Christian thought is worth paying attention to. There's real wisdom here. And that book was so influential to so many people this year because um, it's it's the idea of we're a community of saints listen to each other and 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 Liz you talked about this we're disconnected because of COVID we're separated and you know I don't know Esau personally um, but the idea is that coming together as a community is a way to get to truth I, I I just believe that to my core coming together as a community is a way to get to truth and if you refuse to do that. I think it shows a lack of humility. I think it shows a lack of the way of Christ. And I'm not saying I'm right. I'm saying that together, we have a much better shot at being right and getting right and following Jesus. And that's, I think that's critical. And I, that's part of what 2020, I think, may, might have stripped from us, or it revealed how deeply, in my opinion, how deeply we need it. Yeah, and, and I love what you're saying. It's not only just coming together as community, it's coming together as community and listening to and honoring voices and stories that are from a very different perspective than, yeah. than maybe the traditional stream. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think listening and reading and um, speaking uh, broadly, you know, conversing, yeah. broadly is really important and i think i think there's a natural fear for some people and it's um it's 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 it, in some ways it's justified you know there's a fear like well how broadly jay like when do i know that i'm not stepping outside the bounds of orthodoxy yeah and and then if somebody says well like these things pertaining to sexuality or these things pertaining to politics or these things this is outside and inside of the boundaries. Um, then the second question is like, well, who says? Like, who are you to say? How do I know? You know? And so maybe it's just safer for me to sit in my little comfort zone. <clears throat> this is where I think something you guys have already talked about quite a bit already. This is where the community of Jesus matters so much. Yeah. It's where finding 
a community and embedding yourself in that community and learning to live in the midst of the tensions that that community faces. That's why it matters so much. Yeah. You know, um, Liz, in your book, um, you, you shared your story and you shared with me personally of growing up in a very um, cult-like environment in a Christian cult. And uh, one, of the, one of the psychological effects of that, you know this better than I do, is the way they control you is to utterly limit your scope of um, ideas, essentially, the ideas you can engage. Because if they can limit the ideas, they can keep you boxed into uh, a static position that's very controllable. You're never going to change. But never going to change means never going to grow. And never going to grow means you're dead. <laughs> Things that don't grow are dead. Right. By their nature, they're dead things. And I think formation into Christ-likeness demands growth. And what I, again, I want to be careful here. By growth, I do not mean constant evolution of your theological position. There is Christian orthodoxy. But Christian orthodoxy, I believe, is best learned and embodied and lived out uh, within the context of a living, breathing organism known as the church. As you embed yourself in a church that is trying their best to be as faithful to the way of Jesus as possible. And I think good Christian engagement with politics is possible from that place. Yeah. Not because yeah. you are surrounded by people who sit on the exact same position as you on the political spectrum, but, but because you are surrounded by, by people who don't. And I think that's what makes it transformative that you learn to follow Jesus faithfully in the midst of difference, right? To borrow the words of, of our friend, Scott McKnight, it, it, the Christian church is a fellowship, fellowship of difference. difference. Yeah. You know? and, and not um, difference, difference. Yeah. yeah. Different yeah. people. We are different people. Yeah. yeah. Well, guys, uh, again, this is probably the second word. Jay, you like to say, this is not the last word. This is the first word. That's what you say all the time. So this is like the second word, and we're looking forward to the third and fourth. And as we gather together, both in small groups and life groups and, and over coffee shop, is if we digested this. And I know that just, just personally for me, Jay, Liz, your guys' brains and theological heart and knowledge in, in deciphering this past year, which was a, like, it felt like every day, like one day I woke up and remember when the sky was orange? Remember that? Yeah. And we were on Mars? Every day it was like, ah, you guys have been so helpful just as friends and as community to help me process this. Jay, there's been times when you're like, I think you're overreacting. Liz, you're like, yeah, you haven't thought about this, have you? And I'm like, no, I haven't. The perspectives you guys have brought have brought me into so much richness and to understand and to mitigate my own wild brain. And I, I think that's the beauty of community. I think that's what Westgate is about. I'm super excited about finally getting back together in person and hopefully over coffee and over, well, for me, food. Uh, I'm very a big, big fan of that. But Thank you guys for engaging this. Thank you for your conversations. Thank you for your contributions. And um, we look forward to, um, you know, plowing on ahead into 2021. It won't be easy, but if we're together with Jesus, uh, we'll make it. So thank you guys. Cool. Yeah.